So anyway, I wanted to talk tonight about uh, something that we don't, uh, it's not uh, part of the Eightfold Path per se, but it's such a key player in this whole uh, process of waking up in our practice in general that, um, you know, we were bubbling over with the need to address it. So I decided tonight was just a a good foundational night to to talk about it. And this is the Buddhist teaching on, on faith. It's so important. It's uh, one of these uh, really basic, like sila and dana. You know, it's got these. It's got this foundational quality uh, for us in our practice. And sometimes I just think it doesn't get enough airtime. And, and it's not that we don't talk about it, um, or, or um, there aren't articles about it. There's books about it. There's a lot out there about this quality, as it uh, as the Buddha talked about it. But uh, what I mean when I say it doesn't get enough airtime, I've noticed, certainly in myself, but also in a lot of people that I talk to, that we're not in the habit of noticing it. We're not in the habit of connecting with it as a a dominant uh, feature of this whole process of waking up. And it's very important, because what we know from right efforts, and we'll get into this later on in the course, is that you know so much of practice is not is not just about overcoming things that are difficult. It's about identifying and fanning the flame of the things that are very very skillful and very supportive. And uh, this in particular is, is one of them. And it takes a little um, just reflection to get to understand how the Buddha comes at it, because he comes at it a, a little di- differently than we might have heard in. Uh, uh, other religious experiences or spiritual practices. I know for myself, the way it was taught to me, I was raised Catholic, and um, you know, one of the, the ways that it was held was that uh, there are things that you cannot know, and so you have to accept them on faith. You know? And as a kid, you go, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> I can do that, and, and you go along with it. But then as, as you get older, you start to go, no, wait a minute, you know? Um, and, and, and maybe get drawn to teachings that say otherwise. You know, this mind, this heart has the capacity to see, has the capacity to know and understand. We have the experience, um, the example of the Buddha who uh, awakened and, and knew. And uh, what he's telling us and what we want to believe at this point, maybe accept on it with a certain amount of bright faith, um, is that we can do it and it can be done. And so, you know, faith in, in, in Buddhism it has a slightly different connotation. It's a, the word, the Pali word that uh, we're talking about here is sada, and it's usually translated as faith, but it has this uh, connotation of um, of trust, and it has a little bit of a connotation of belief, but not in the sense of um, where it's a dogmatic belief. You know, believe this uh, as a teaching. It, it's more like uh, a provisional belief, you know, until I figure it out for myself. That that's then I'll I'll hold it in that way. And, and uh, but the the connotation that I like the most uh, with this is uh, more of a confidence or a conviction. The way that the Buddha frames this is that faith or sada is a, a a conviction or ever growing, ever increasing knowing that comes from having. Um, uh, investigated, having looked into our moment-to-moment experience and endeavored to see it according to the Dhamma, and verified for ourselves over the months and years and possibly <clears throat> lifetimes of practice that indeed um, what he is saying in the Buddhist teachings is uh, is true. 
You know, so uh, a, a better translation for it might be a kind of knowing or conviction. Uh, Tan Jeff always refers to it as conviction. Uh, that, that starts, as I said, provisionally, but matures o- over the months and years of practice. And, and I think of it as like a spark. You know, it's got this fire element to it. You know, it's a spark that um, arises in the heart and gets us going, gets us turning towards, with interest, uh, towards uh, understanding. And uh, it, it's a way, I think, that, uh, this, is the way, this is the way I experience it, it's, it's a way that we make an emotional connection with what it is that we're doing. You know, faith is often referred to as devotion. And devotion, in some respects, and, and, and sometimes in the West, can have a, a you know, it's, it's got, just got a connotation that people aren't particularly interested in. But if you think of devotion as being devoted to something, committed to something, um, endeavoring to discern through your own direct experience, this is what we're talking about. And so it gets, the, it gets us going, <laughs> It starts the whole process of looking into our experience. And it sustains us throughout. It's there. Look and see. It's there. And it's uh, supporting us and and helping us hang in there through the the months and years that that it takes to to wake up. And so just as a way of sort of getting a sense of what it is that we're talking about, is to invite you to to go to the direct experience of faith and, and take a moment and just try to remember um, wherever it was uh, in your life that um, you came to the Buddhist teachings. You know, something, something was stirred. And lots of times for a lot of people it comes out of difficulty. We're, having, we're struggling, we're having a difficult uh, experience in life. I know that, that's how it was for me, looking for answers trying to find a body of teachings that was going to help me to get out of the, the suffering and the tangles that I kept finding myself in. Or perhaps we're just kind of uh, philosophers and looking for the answers to, to life's questions. But something in us, and I bet you can, everybody can identify, it's like, where were you when Kennedy was shot? You know, where were you when you first heard the Buddhist teachings? You know? and, and something happened. And uh, one turns uh, with interest and, and begins this whole uh, process of uh, committing and ripening uh, of that seed that has been planted at that point. So whatever the details, uh, somewhere, somewhere along the line, each and every one of us knew and knows that there's something significant here. <laughs> there's something really important here, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to stop till I find out <laughs> Until I see it for myself, that kind of uh, that kind of feeling, where we're drawn to the teachings, drawn to the practices, and admittedly, a lot of this is kind of uh, a little bit blind in the beginning, isn't it? We don't know, you know, but we we, we do it anyway. I mean, that isn't that amazing. <laughs> I mean, I find that just so remarkable, and it, we can miss it, uh, and yet it's it, it's got uh, it, it's driving it. It's so much of the fuel of what it is that we're about. And it's active in us all. And in the Buddhist uh, teachings, we're saying that this is very important and recognize it uh, as the fuel, the, the fuel, the fire for practice. So it serves to get us started and it serves to sustain us through the, the years of practice as we try to sort it out and figure it out for ourselves. And we meet a lot of obstacles <laughs> and a lot of challenges along the way. Uh, 
And I think it's very important that we acknowledge that and name these and, and know what it is that we're up against in order to liberate this mind. So some of the obstacles are just coming into contact with our own obstructive patterns. <laughs> you know, this is some of the real, the brutal parts of practice, if you ask me. You, know, you just have to sit through this stuff. And, and here we give, we've got these beautiful aspirations and intentions to, say, live by the precepts, for example. You know, we take the precepts and we wrap our minds and, and hearts around these uh, wonderful um, determinations, really. Uh, and yet, um, over and over again, what you keep seeing uh, in daily life and uh, in practice is how we keep doing things that we don't want to do. How we can't seem to gather ourselves around or make ourselves do the things that we do want to do. <laughs> this is very, very painful stuff. It's very, very frustrating. And it's made and seemingly all the more frustrating by the fact that now we know, you know, like Buddhism gives us all kinds of names for the garbage, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, now, we, now we have new names for it all. <laughs> and we know more clearly what it all is. And yet, you know, you can't, uh, you can't uh, overcome it. That you've got these fabulous, skillful intentions coming up over here, and you've got the old ways coming up over here, and they have a, they have a momentum. <laughs> they have a power and a strength all their own. And it, it can be very, very frustrating. It's some of the most painful uh, stuff in practice. You know, how do you hang in there? And I'll be darned, but we do. <laughs> You know, I've had more conversations about uh, uh, the frustrations that people feel about not being able to do. And, and, and the reason really is that um, for, you know, what's been driving the ship for a long time is self-view. And self-view is this sense of me as the one who's fixing everything and controlling it and managing it, you know. And so <laughs> if, if I get an idea that I want to be a certain way, by golly, I should be that way. Well, good luck. You know, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't. It doesn't play out like that. But we have to figure this out for ourselves. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't happen just because we wish to be a certain way. We have to discern the harm of being this way, the skill of being that way, the happiness of being this way, and and actually see it for ourselves so that the knowing uh, penetrates deeply. Well, that takes time, doesn't it? It takes time, and something. Faith is the, is the quality that is going to help us uh, hang in there while we're sorting this all out. So that's just with the, trying to work with conduct, with behavior, with um, the precepts. But then we also have this, this practice of the meditation. You know, you got this real simple instruction. <laughs> just relax, pay attention, you know. Try to be with the breath. Try to know what's happening. And if the mind wanders, bring it back, bring it back. You know, how many times have you heard that? You know, and how simple is that basic instruction? But uh, what you have to confront in the effort to accomplish that or to realize that is just so many um, movements of the mind to the contrary. It's wandering all over the place, you know, it's just everywhere. But it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's simple enough. Stay here. <coughs> Stay here. <Yeah. laughs> Stay here. <laughs> it's just, you know, relentless. 
And this can be very, very frustrating. I mean, I don't think I've met anybody in all my years of practice who hasn't at some point wanted to throw in the towel, you know. <laughs> Just, oh, you know, it can't be done, uh, or I can't do it, and all that kind of stuff uh, comes into the mind. And, and you know, you, you just notice it. How many times did you notice it today? How many times throughout the course of the day? You know, I was just watching during walking meditation. <coughs> it's a real great place to see it. You know, the mind just doesn't... It's, it's, okay, be, be a human being who's walking and knows that you're walking. <laughs> this concern, that person, this situation, that attitude, that squirrel, that tree... Everything just keeps coming in and pulling, and pulling the attention, and, and uh, we're just trying to stay put. It's it can be very very difficult. I mean, I just try to work with it in the morning, just flossing my teeth. You know, <laughs> just could we just floss our teeth? <laughs> could we just floss our teeth for as long as it takes to floss our teeth? Could that be good enough? Could that could that be enough? You know, but we have to confront all these uh, patterns and habits of the body and, and the mind that are just highly conditioned and it, it feels like it's a it, it's a personal vendetta you know, <laughs> like it, it's determined to deflect the attention away from what it is that we're actually doing you know and so, you know, both of these just just trying to um, establish some good sila, just trying to live by the precepts, you know, it's beautiful stuff trying to uh, still the mind, trying to, to collapse uh, the, the attention just to the, the present moment. That's all that it's about. And yet, you know, it can feel like uh, exercises in failure for so many years. But we, we stay with it. And I, I just find this remarkable. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself because I spent so many years looking for teachings, looking for... Um, I, actually baptized in many religions, you know, trying to find the one that would hold me. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's been, it just keeps going on and on in Buddhism. It just keeps getting better and better. And something is uh, uh, moving, and one can feel it. You get very, very happy. And the, the faith that keeps us coming back for more. Um, why it, it, you keep coming back for more is... It's like, a, it's like this spiral effect. It starts very provisionally, but it, it keeps getting verified, even just in little ways. You know, it doesn't take much. It's like, you know, that's right. That's what the Buddha said, that's right. Uh, hatred, I feel terrible when I'm tangled up in hatred. That's right, I get that, okay. I can see that. Just simple little things like this. And th- so this is how uh, faith operates. And, and let's be honest, it, it, it takes a long time for the mind to soften uh, enough for us to see clearly. And that's okay. <laughs> it's just, let's just say that and get it on the table and be honest <coughs> about that and, and, uh, and recognize and acknowledge that uh, there's something stirring in all of us that keeps us hanging in there while this softening is taking place. It's good stuff. We need to notice it, and uh, I like to kind of wiggle down and do it when it happens. You know, you just kind of—it's good stuff. It feels very, very good. 
So you've got these uh, sort of internal obstacles. Uh, they're, they're the obstacles of the, the force of our karmic patterns of delusion and ignorance and craving. You know, we've got to take that on, and that takes time. And that's a lot. But then there's also these um, obstacles that, that come uh, from our culture. And uh, you know, just sit back and think about what it is that we're trying to do as Buddhist uh, practitioners. And here we are, we're just, we're just trying to overcome uh, greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. <laughs> You know, and and then and then we got born into a culture that uh, it, which itself is established around these principles. You know, it's it's amazing. You see what we're up against. I remember reading an article um, by David Lawyer a number of years ago, and he put it very well. You know, he he said that uh, our our economic system is uh, instit- is a form of institutionalized greed, and uh, our military system is a form of uh, institutionalized ill will. And our, um, the, the media, the, things, the place that we go to for information, presumably accurate information, is really, really um, institutional, institutionalized forms of delusion. You know, that if you, if you stay with it, and I, I know, you, you, I'm sure you can probably relate, if you, if you keep going to, um, at least especially contemporary sources of uh, information from the media, the standard um, sources, uh, you come away either completely confused and muddled or uh, totally factionalized and polarized. <laughs> you, know, you don't get clear. You get anything but clear. Granted, there's a good information, but um, we're, we're trying to offset these states of mind, not uh, cultivate them. And yet, uh, a lot of the, the things that drive our, our culture uh, seem determined to cultivate them. And they, they, they drive us towards uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. And, and we have to acknowledge, um, I think, that um, despite all of our good intentions and all of our good wishes, that we're products of that culture. <laughs> Most of us were raised in these cultures, and so this is necessarily going to put us at profound odds with uh, with um, the culture as well as our internal impulses. Because I mean, I've had many a conversation. Just it could be something as simple as whether or not to get an iPhone. You know, <laughs> talking to one girlfriend a number of years ago, she was just in this huge tizzy, a dilemma. You know, because. Uh, certainly, to get an iPhone or not to get an iPhone is a benign decision. It's a, this is a benign product on one level, but knowing that one is completely um, distracted already, <laughs> the, the, you know, her dilemma was: Do I want to get something that is going to further mm-hmm. my distraction? It's going to facilitate that even more. Constantly hearing something ping, ping, ping in my pocket, you know. <laughs> And, and, and again, I want to uh, reassure us, I'm not at all taking a, a, a position on this. These, these are fine. These are wonderful technologies and can be put to very good use. But more relating to her and her dilemma around this, because uh, the, the push was that you've got to have one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have to pause a moment and stand a moment with these kinds of cultural, when this kind of cultural momentum is kind of pushing us from behind and deciding, decide for ourselves uh, what serves our practice and what doesn't. 
and, and indeed this may, but it may not. And so just to have the, I think what, what we point to here when we're taking on the culture is a, a fair amount of courage. You know, one has to be willing to be the odd one out. You have to be willing to um, question the values and standards of, of, of the culture, especially if, if through your practice you see that it's not aligned with where you want to go or what you've seen, right? That's, that's a huge tension, and we have to know this. So just to, to know that um, uh, society's uh, de- definition, if you will, of, of a high standard of living usually involves some manner of consuming and acquiring and uh, accumulating things. And it all seems to be defined in terms of happiness uh, related to um, worldly pleasures. You know, and, and Buddhism uh, just comes at this from a very different angle. It kind of flies in the face of uh, the Buddhist definition of happiness. Where well, we learn uh, when he talks about uh, pleasure, for example, he, he, he discriminates between worldly pleasure and unworldly pleasure. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with worldly pleasure. Absolutely nothing. You know, Buddha gets a bad rap on this one. He's not, never says anything about. Um, the pleasure of the senses being wrong in any way. It, it's just more a case of um, weighing it up, you know, against the, the pleasures of um, what he calls the unworldly pleasures, which are things like the Brahma Viharas and uh, kindness and generosity and the, the qualities that characterize a highly um, optimized or evolved human being, right? And so it's just, it's more a case of look and see. <laughs> what do you want? Where do you want to be? So that, you know, in, in Buddhist terms, a, a high standard of living, it, it has nothing to do with worldly uh, objects. You know, a high standard, the high standard of living is living by the precepts. That's a high standard. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, a, it's an invitation to do that. Or it's an, it's an encouragement to re- realize uh, that um, where, the, where the, the kind of happiness that we're all seeking really is. You know, to me, it's, it's as if the Buddha says, you want happy? Try generosity. <laughs> yeah? it, doesn't, it, it doesn't get any better than that. It, it's fabulous. You know, when, when the heart is completely existing or concerned for the welfare of other people. It's, oh, man, that's some of the best stuff. And what about kindness and uh, compassion? You know, these, these beautiful qualities. Uh, you know, all he's saying here is look and see. Uh, where, what are the standards by which you want to live? <laughs> by which we want to live? And... Uh, uh, and, and discern it for ourselves. So, uh, faith is, I think, the quality, perhaps more than anything, that helps us to stand firm uh, in our practice and in the values that we uncover through our practice, even in the face of um, a, a world around us that doesn't mirror that. <laughs> It would be a lot easier if it mirrored it, which is probably why we're all drawn to places like this, because it does in certain arenas. 
You know, we, we, these kinds of uh, settings, these kinds of environments tend to bring out the best in us. It's one of the reasons why I, I go to the monastery every year. I usually go for two or three months and um, it's always interesting to me to see how maybe the first week or so uh, I have to get reacclimated. <laughs> you know, so, oh yeah, I remember this. Doing for others first. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. Okay, or, or I remember this. I, I'm tired, but she needs some help. I'll help her, you know, that, that kind of quality. And then little by little over the, the course of the, the months, you, you can feel it. it. It just keeps pulling and pulling and pulling for the, the best, the, the optimal qualities. And I don't want to over-romanticize it. I never wanted to kill anybody before I went to the monastery, so <laughs> it's not all that. But, but generally speaking, this is what's going on there. So, you know, look at what we're up against. We've got to deal with our own obstacles, our own patterns and habits to the contrary. Living in a society that doesn't always support what it is that we're trying to do. Uh, being willing to be the odd one out, if you will. But even these aren't, aren't uh, they, they sort of pale by comparison to what, what the practice is asking us to, to do in, a, in the most profound way. And that's really to, to awaken to um, uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. I mean, that's the, the, the kernel, the cornerstone of the insights that um, characterize our practice. And so, uh, you know, we're, what we're up against here is a, um, a biology, if you will, uh, even, that um, is geared towards uh, security, is geared towards survival at all costs, is geared towards pleasure, <laughs> is geared towards control and being on top of things. You know, they, these are very primordial uh, reptilian instincts that are literally uh, in our uh, cellular structure. And um, we're taking that head-on. <laughs> we're trying to meet that head-on uh, so that we can uh, awaken to the reality of um, our existence as a human being, which is that it's, it's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and we don't have the control that we think that we do. And I don't know about you, but as a, you know, through the years of practice, as I begin to turn towards this, and really, uh, you know, you can you can sort of half look at it for a long time. <laughs> Just, uh, <laughs> no, it's it's not that way, is it? You know, and and but little by little, you can't deny it. You have to open uh, to, to these realities of our existence. And you can feel the, the mind just go bonkers <laughs> with all the yes buts. And the no, you know. Uh, I want it to be nice once and for all. Mm-hmm. When is it going to be great once and for all, you know? I want to hit that place. Uh, I, want it, I want it to go the way that I want it to go. I want everybody to be the way that I want them to be. You know, I, I want to know what tomorrow brings. I want to be able to control how this conversation is going to go, you know, or what they're going to do, or what this one's going to say. You know, but it's, it's just not like that. And, and these are um, seemingly harsh realities, 
as an idea, but as a as a practice or as an experience. Um, quite the contrary, <laughs> you know. But to get to it, one has to actually um, open to uh, our helplessness and our complete and utter vulnerability <laughs> in, in, in the presence of these realities that we've been born into. Did you say helplessness or hopelessness? Helplessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there's a, there's a. You can try to make it be some other way, <laughs> right? We've all tried. We, we all still do, probably. But it, it's not some other way. It's this way. And the Dhamma keeps bringing us back to the way that it is. But I want it to be that, but it's this way. But I don't like it, but it's this way. But I wish it was, but it's this way. It's that movement of the mind and the, the settling into um, life as it actually is. That, uh, yeah, it's a struggle. It's a, something, there's a, there's a whining and a resisting and a complaining, but, but it's really, if you, as we look at it, it's really uh, based on uh, fear and delusion. And, and not, the, the delusion being not understanding that um, life lived in the realities of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta is actually far better. <laughs> it's much better to live life in these realities than to constantly be quarreling with them, wielding your sword, fighting, wishing, and trying to make it be some other way. It's just, it's just better to just let go and, and relax. And, uh, you know, and as I've been saying, this just takes time. And uh, something has to uh, is guiding us to, to hang in there while we figure this all out for ourselves. But what we do, what we do see as we as we get it, is that uh, not only is practice a whole lot easier, but life's a whole lot easier. This is, this is just the way it is, and open to it. So I was reading an, an essay by Bhikkhu Bodhi a number of years ago, and uh, uh, he says, uh, I just want to read you something that he said in this particular essay, but to me, he captures the whole of the practice in a, in a, a few simple sentences. And um, it, it's very succinct, but it's, it's uh, also a, a testament or a statement of how faith is the undercurrent of all of this. So here's what he says. He says, uh, We begin with an immediately verifiable teaching whose validity can be attested by anyone, anyone, with the moral integrity to follow it through to its uh, conclusions. Namely, that the defilements cause harm and suffering, both personal and social that their removal brings peace and happiness, and that the practices taught by the Buddha are effective means for achieving their removal. You see what he's getting at? You, you, you apply it, you, you see what the difficulty is, you, you hear the teaching that says it can be removed, and um, you put that into effect and find that it's true. 
that you are more peaceful and more happy. And by putting this teaching to a personal test, with only a provisional trust, this is what he's talking, what we talk about with faith. Faith starts very provisionally. It's not at all verified. It's just okay. Sounds good to me. Buddha's pretty smart guy. I think I'll just uh, see what he, see if what he's saying is true. See if I can see it for myself. So, with only a provisional trust in the Buddha uh, as one's collateral, one eventually arrives at a, at a firmer experientially grounded confidence in the liberating and purifying power of the Dhamma. And this increases confidence in the teaching. It brings along a deepening of faith in the Buddha as a teacher, his teaching, and those who have practiced it. Which interestingly is how um, classically uh, so the, the optimal faith, realized faith, the, the ultimate faith, is defined as a uh, really getting um, complete uh, and utter faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Under, just trust, you know that the Buddha was right because you did the same thing and you saw it. <laughs> right? You know that his teaching is efficacious because you applied yourself and you realized it. And um, you, know, uh, you, you know that the Sangha... Uh, that the practice and the teachings have been carried forward, it had to be carried forward by people who did that too, <laughs> or it wouldn't have come through with the clarity that it's come through. Yeah? So it really, it really gets, it gets in there very, very deep. And this is all how um, the Buddha defines uh, what happens at the first stage of awakening. This is, it, it's all uh, right here in, in the realization of, uh, and the maturing of faith. And, and just as a, um, uh, another teaching that I think would be very, is very, very helpful at this point, um, and this comes from the, uh, the Sotipati Samyutta, where the, the, you may uh, become familiar as we uh, study and practice together with the different collections um, uh, of the Pali Canon. And the Samyutta Nikaya is um, the uh, connected discourses. It, and what it uh, does is it takes different themes like the Bojangas, the Seven Factors of Awakening, like Satipatthana, the Foundations of Mindfulness, or like um, the Various Stages of Awakening. And it collects all the suttas from um, the Pali Canon and puts them into a book. <laughs> and so uh, the Bojanga Samyutta is all about the practice of awakening. And uh, this one, the, the Sotapati Samyutta, is all about what happens at the first stage of awakening. So, you know... It gets our attention. <laughs> Presumably, that's a, that's what we're all working on. And so, what we learn from in this is that anybody who wishes to progress along the path, it says, to realize stream entry, to realize this first stage of awakening in this lifetime, in this very lifetime, um, he says, you they must act on faith. They must act on faith and the factors that support that, the things that support faith. So this, I don't know about you, but that gets my attention. <laughs> okay, what, what are they? What are they? <laughs> you know, I want to know. And you, I think you'll be surprised to discover how very practical uh, and simple uh, and unassuming and accessible the factors that support uh, faith are. They're uh, associating with good people, 
um, listening to the true Dhamma, uh, appropriate or wise attention, Yonisil Manasikara, uh, and practicing in accordance with the Dhamma. All sounds very doable, doesn't it? <laughs> it's very possible to uh, apply for ourselves. So just a little bit on each one to, to help us uh, connect with what he's saying here. So uh, associating um, with good people. Well, we know a lot about that. We're all here together. We know we go to these centers. We hang out in monasteries and retreat centers and places where the Dhamma is taught and where it's studied and practiced. And uh, these are all very, very much supporting uh, factors uh, for increasing our understanding, for increasing our knowing. And this is important to realize. Uh, and so it's very important to associate with good people. And there's a, there's a lot of suttas where this comes through. And there's one in the Udana where he's talking to this monk, Megia, and he he's t- tells him uh, five things that lead to maturity in practice. And uh, among these are good friends, good associates, good companions. And there's one in the in the Anguttara uh, Nikaya that you hear frequently. He says, um, I know of no other thing of such power to cause the arising of skillful states uh, that have not arisen or the waning of unskillful states that have already arisen as friendship with the lovely. Friendship with the lovely. And in one who is a friend of what is lovely, skillful states not arisen do not arise, uh, or do arise, and unskillful states uh, that have already arisen wane. And this, this choice of the word lovely is an interesting one because it has a, a double meaning. And, you know, Andy was alluding to many of the words having a double meaning. And as I understand it, it, it has a, not only the, the sense of um, skillful companions, lovely companions, but it actually has the connotation of skillful states. So it seems to speak to sort of an internal-external thing going on here. You know, hang out with the people that are going to support skillful states. But when skillful states arise in your mind, hang out with them too. (laughs) You know, it gets that subtle. And uh, align yourselves. Associate with the wise. Associate with the skillful. And so, but here we're not just talking about companionship. There's a very specific um, word for associating with good people, and this is a kalyanamitta, and and it carries with it the the connotation of associating with the wise. And, and that's the that's a one that's kind of seems to be getting a little bit lost in the, in the West. It's very specifically that, and uh, I look to. Um, even the, word, the meaning of the word Theravada is a, a key word in this, a, a key pointer. You know, Theravada means the way of the elders. And it's a, it started with the, you know, the, the elders' council and the thus have I heard. This is what I think he said. Let's all uh, listen again and remember what the Buddha said. But uh, it, it carries this connotation, too, of... A, of um, uh, people who understand, people who um, uh, have a little more experience than we do. Uh, so that literally the whole um, monastic uh, system and certainly other systems within Buddhist practice are, are designed around uh, a recognition and an acknowledgement 
that uh, it is a good idea to hang out with people who know more than you do. <laughs> You know, the whole the whole system in um, the monastery is a is a form of hierarchy. That uh, maybe hierarchy gets a bad name sometimes in our culture, but it has great value when you're talking about people who know more than we do. You know, it, it presumes a certain wisdom that comes with years, so that the elders within the community are people that you turn to. <laughs> you know, and and I found I have found that to be definitely true. You know, when you go to an elder with an issue, a problem. Uh, this is what I see in my mind. I can't stop doing this. I can't, can't make myself do that. Um, the, the response that I have gotten 100% of the time, across the board, has, has never been anything like, oh, you know, smack you around. <laughs> you know, you need to stop doing that or something like that. It's always been, oh, yeah, I know that one. <laughs> You know, so they're, 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 uh, what I'm pointing to is a sense that uh, elders are people who have been there. <laughs> they know the tangles. They know uh, how they got into them. They know how to get out of them. And uh, we turn to them uh, for help with the, that very same kind of thing. Uh, and, and I love that. You know, the, the whole monastic community is really an, an, an institutionalized form of associating with the wise. <laughs> as are many of these kinds of communities that we live in here. And so just one more on this one. I, lo- I love this one from the uh, Samyutta Nikaya. He says, uh, One should associate with the good, the wise, the lovely. With the good, one should foster intimacy. Having learned the true Dhamma of the good, one becomes better, never worse. I love that. <laughs> and don't you find that to be true? You know, there's something about good companionship that lifts us, it moves us in the right direction. And we all know this, you know, or we wouldn't be here. So it's just up to us to, to take, uh, take full advantage. So that's associating with the good, associating with the wise. And then there's listening to the true Dhamma. That's a biggie. You know, we, we hear the words of others and, and we read the texts and we can be inspired and, and sparked from, from very deep within. The Buddha said, listen to the Dhamma and this is what nourishes faith. This, is, this, this will help us along the way. And so one can get, um, get into this constant quest to find people um, to listen to. And, and this is good, this is important. I mean, uh, for many years early on in practice, I know for myself and maybe for some of you, this takes the form of trying to find, you know, who's the best teacher, what's the best tradition, should I do Zen Buddhism, should I do Tibetan, should I go to Theravada, should I go to Burma, should I go to Thailand, should I go to Sri Lanka, all this kind of stuff uh, plays out, doesn't it? And uh, it's, kind of, it's, it's skillful, um, uh, uh, unless it gets neurotic, of course, but uh, it's more, it's like just what, what's going on in all of this is um, one is trying to find um, somebody or something that uh, speaks the Dhamma in a way that this mind gets it. Yeah? And that's good. You want to do that. You know, and certainly don't want to argue about who has the right thing because that's not, that's not a useful approach. I mean, I, I know I've gotten caught in that early on. You know, 
this this Theravada is the way, you know. <laughs> these these other disciplines don't don't have it. But you learn through the years, don't you? That it's not it's not like that. <laughs> It, it, it's 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 all uh, in there. They're all very very good paths. The trick is to um, become familiar with how you receive and process information, and what is the um, uh, the, the teacher, uh, the the form that it comes to, um, that aligns with that, so that you can hear the Dhamma. You know, listening to the true Dhamma. It, 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 it's not just the Dhamma. <laughs> it's how you hear it. That You have to get that e- equation going. And so um, we're encouraged to listen with our minds. Uh, and this involves um, reading the books and doing the study like we're doing in, in the classroom. And this, in this day and age, it's just... I don't know about you, but this internet just totally boggles my mind. I mean, you can Google the seven factors of awakening, you know, and get all manner of fabulous teaching. It's all right there and available for us. And so the idea is to just uh, really work with this study side of the equation, but also to balance it with the um, practice side of the equation. In the way that Ajahn Chah would put this, he would say, um, listen with our hearts. You listen with the mind and listen with the heart. And what he's pointing to here is more the intuitive knowledge, the knowing that comes from direct observation. You see it. You know from your moment-to-moment experience. And uh, that, that is something that uh, penetrates uh, in, in a way much more deeply. And not to confuse these two, to work them, work them both well. You know, one can be a, attached to words and uh, fail to um, work with it in practice or to see the experience. It, it can be, and this can be a, a, a great pitfall, for, especially for, for people highly intellectualized. You know, I, I remember working with a, a fella at the Forest Refuge a number of years ago. He was so knowledgeable about the teachings. <laughs> He knew it all. He knew all the stages of awareness and the progress of insight and all of this, you know. And every time he would come in uh, to report on an interview, he would say this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Is that it? You know, he, he would he would say, "I saw this. I saw this. I saw this. Is that it?" You know, he he had this idea that how you see a Nietzsche. Is like this, 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 and you know the 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 experience of trying to guide him was just oh, just opened my heart so much. You know, it was like oh, how do you how do you help somebody to drop it, just drop the book knowledge, and look at the precise moment to moment experience and trust that that that'll reveal it, that will do it for you if you can just uh, trust that and let go. And this is what the the fourth foundation of mindfulness is all about. It's getting us to the insights that uh, are revealed. (coughs) So the the third one is appropriate attention, or wise attention. And we'll we'll get into this more thoroughly um, as the course unfolds. I don't uh, want to spend too much time on it tonight, but uh, one of the main 
uh, suttas where we see this is the, um, the sutta that's called the, the Two Kinds of Thought. It's Majjhima 19. And it's this wonderful um, account uh, from the Buddha of a process that he went through in his own awakening where um, he says uh, uh, on the one hand he would notice that there would be thoughts of, of sense desire, ill will, and cruelty. And um, if he followed those, uh, they would lead to harm. On the other hand, he would see, he would, uh, see thoughts of renunciation, non-ill <coughs> will, and non-cruelty, and that these would lead to good. And uh, it's a little more... Um, he explains it a little more elaborately than that, but that's essentially it. And, and so uh, when he saw this, he said, he um, would uh, relinquish the things that were harmful and sustain and develop the things that were skillful and good. You know, and, and you read this and you go, well, you know, that's easy for you. You're the Buddha. <laughs> you, know, you just don't do that and do this, you know. But um, it's not, because he's, if you look at what he's saying, it's actually something that he's, he's describing something that took place before he was the Buddha. He's describing a process that uh, is the same as the process that we're all engaged in. Just looking and seeing. It's like this, it's like this. Where do you want to be? And that, that's uh, essentially um, the Buddha's definition of wise attention. <laughs> attending to the things that are skillful and for our good that lead to nirvana, not attending to the things that are not skillful and that lead away from nirvana. And so one has to get a very good working knowledge and, and direct experience of yoni sikara, which is wise, wise attention. And so practicing in, in accordance with the Dhamma, and, and the Buddha was, was quite clear on, on uh, how we verify the teachings, and we were touching on this a little bit uh, today in class, uh, when Andy was talking about ehipasiko, you know, come and see for yourself. It's basically, it's no, there's no magic to it. It's just look. Look to the moment-to-moment experience of the body and the mind, and discern for ourselves um, through insight and, and wisdom. Um, and, and I love this because the, the implication in this is don't come and believe <laughs> come and know come and see for yourselves you know and there's a, a, any number of uh, suttas in the Pali Canon where the Buddha uh, puts a little more flesh on the bone of that but one I came across uh, recently uh, just really got my attention it's, a, it's one of, um, from the destruction of craving and He's, he's talking to he's talking about personal development and he's talking to the uh, uh, monastic community and uh, I think they're getting ready to go out and teach and so he's uh, he says to them um, so uh, so what are you going to do when you go out and you talk about the the Dhamma are you going to say um, this is what the the Buddha this is what the teacher said and so this is what you should believe you know. And they said, no, venerable sir. <laughs> and so he says, well, w- will you talk about what you know from your own direct experience? And he, they say, yes, venerable sir. And, and uh, you, can, you can feel the, the mood. And, you know, it's like this, he, he congratulates them. He applauds them. He said, yes, that's, that's the way I wanted to go out there. You know 
what you're talking about, know the teachings from your own direct experience, and, and then uh, offer it. And this is the, the same sentiment that's in the Kalama Sutta and others like this, where uh, the Buddha is not dis- it can sound like he's discouraging listening to teachers, and that's not at all what he's saying. But what he's saying is that, uh, yeah, listen to teachers, read the text, study it all. But in the end, um, what, the only thing that's going to liberate your heart is if you've actually seen it for yourself. And, and so that, that's one of the things that I think attracts so many people to, to the Buddhist teachings, because uh, he's, um, it, it is, there's such a, a, a high degree of confidence coming from the Buddha to us <laughs> to say, you can know this. This is not beyond your capacity to know and understand and see for yourselves. And, and that uh, inspires, that uplifts. When, that, when that's coming at you from the teacher, you know, you, you, you believe it. <laughs> you dare uh, to approach it uh, in that way. It's very, very powerful. He must have had a high, high, high degree of confidence. And the only way that he could have had that is uh, that he's, he's speaking from a realized mind. So he's saying just basically don't settle for things. Don't settle for um, things that are conjectures and conceivings. Don't settle for the things the mind tells us. Look and see. Uh, don't settle for um, anything that anybody says. Discover it for ourselves. And this, this is how we characterize this, practicing according to the Dhamma. Practicing according to the Dhamma. So in, 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 in terms of fostering our own liberation, this is the only thing that's going to do it. This is the only way that it's going to actually happen. So, um, one of the... Uh, things I read in an, in an essay one time, I just another thing that really stayed with me was uh, this particular writer was saying, as we verify the teachings for ourselves, faith increases. And it's said that as faith increases, Mara trembles. <laughs> it's like another one lost to the Buddha. You know? <laughs> another mind that I can't confuse or deceive or uh, distort anymore that kind of thing. And, and you know, of course, Mara is symbolic, but um, yeah, just, just just getting into the, the simile there, it's, a, it's just like, this mind can't be muddled and confused anymore. You know, you, you, when you realize that uh, high degree of confidence, then somebody can say, I mean, you can say it's this way, and somebody else can say, no, it's not that way, it's this way. And, and you don't argue with it, you know? It's like, it doesn't matter that other people believe differently or what have you because there's something here that knows. You know, it, it, it's a very peaceful, calm uh, state of, of internal uh, confidence and, and conviction. So this is the, the, the power uh, of faith that um, we watch it go through this, uh, this whole process of sort of going from not at all knowing and living in a deluded and confused state of being to, to gradually, over the months and years and perhaps lifetimes of practice, just applying ourselves to it all and verifying it little by little by little 
And it said until until you reach the point where um, the, the crowning glory is this unshakable uh, conviction. Sounds delicious, doesn't it? <laughs> and may it be so for all of us. And I'll offer you this for your reflection tonight, and, and I hope that it's useful in some small way. So shall we sit just for a moment?